Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, but in a new location this time by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. What the hell is going on, Wolfond? Not too much, man. Uh, from what I gather, you've got a new background, uh, so I'm assuming you've moved into your new condo. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> a long process in general, getting the place, but then from when I got it to when... I moved in, as you knew, based on the fact my location for <clears throat> these recordings was the same. Uh, yeah, between renos and, you know, getting moving stuff over and furnishing it. Yeah, definitely uh, definitely took a little while, but all's well that ends well. And I'm here now and everything's good, man. I'm glad to hear it. We are about two weeks out from the end of the NBA regular season. Things are happening. Coaches are on the hot seat. Uh, the playoff picture is starting to take shape. We're going to break all that down on this episode. And I-, I think we should start with that piece that came out a couple of days ago from Sam Amick and Chance Charania at The Athletic, breaking down the five head coaches whose jobs appear to currently be in jeopardy. I don't know if... the like if there were any particularly huge surprises in that mix, I feel like what was surprising to me about that is like, who is leaking this stuff and who does it benefit? Like at this point of the season and obviously front and center in that article and kind of like in the news cycle is the Pacers and Nate Bjorkren. He's in his first year there. And I think there was a lot of excitement about that hire, especially early in the season when they got off to that great start. And they were playing much more modern ball too. like Right, and we can talk about all that uh, and what has and hasn't worked and how much of a factor injuries have played. And, and I think you know a lot of the reporting around it didn't even have to do with stuff that was happening on the court, right? It was more about mm-hmm. his management style and communication stuff. But it just baffles me a little bit that that is coming out at this point in the season. And I don't know how much impact that has on the team, but judging by what happened last night when they got absolutely shellacked by the Kings and, you know, to be upfront, I didn't actually watch the game, but just judging by the Twitter reactions, it seemed like it was a complete mess and, a, and kind of an embarrassment uh, for that organization. And I think uh, Greg Foster, one of their assistant coaches, wound up getting in like a screaming match with Goga Batadze. Man, more than a screaming match. Miles Turner, Jeremy Lamb, Bjorkman himself... Each of those guys, so multiple players and coaches on multiple occasions in a two-minute span, had to hold Foster back. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know what that was all about, but obviously things are looking pretty dysfunctional in Indiana right now. And the other four coaches that were named in that article were uh, Terry Stotts in Portland, Mike Buddenholzer in Milwaukee, uh, Scott Brooks in Washington, and probably the least surprising inclusion in that list, Luke Walton in Sacramento. So I don't know. What, what are, what are your thoughts on all of this? I mean, it's, I think we both agree that it's just like really hard for us on the outside to like assess coaching performance because there is so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't see. Uh, and I feel like that's sort of what has been going on with Bjorkren in Indiana. And there is some stuff on the surface that we can see that has plainly not been working, but as I feel like we've been saying throughout this entire season, 
it just doesn't feel fair to judge the on-court performance based on how decimated that team has been by injuries. But I do think it's clear. And I mean, Caitlin Cooper, who writes at Indy Cornrows, has done a fantastic job all season of documenting this. In theory, it's nice to have these sort of outside the box schemes and like be willing to change things up on the fly and try a whole bunch of different stuff. But A, like you need to have the personnel who can make that work. And B, if, if you see that it's not working, I think you have to be willing to simplify and adapt rather than just continuing to try and hammer this stuff you know, like the box and ones and the triangle and twos and the various zone looks and all the different kind of junky things that they're throwing out there, like trying to do that over and over again and, and not getting the desired results is just uh, a little bit head scratching. So I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on that whole situation in Indiana and how this year has played out for the woe be gone Pacers? Well, I mean, look, you know, all my condolences to you that you have to watch your Pacers burn to the ground. <laughs> Over the next couple of weeks. <clears throat> can I can I just say something before we continue? Like, I know this has become a bit that I've basically just had to lean into because it's been foisted <laughs> upon me. And I have By really multiple enjoyed... members of the media. Yeah, I have enjoyed the Pacers over the years. And, and basically this happened in... It was like the 2017-18 season when I really sort of fell in love with the team that they had that year because I hadn't expected too much from them. That was the year after they traded Paul George and that trade had been absolutely blasted by myself included i didn't think they got a great return and then oladipo was sensational that year and that was also you know sabonis's breakout and i just kind of fell in love with those two guys and really enjoyed that team and was one of the few people who picked them to like really give the Cavs a serious run for their money in the first round and i don't know somehow that earned me a reputation as like a pacers fan and i and i just kind of leaned into it but like the the love isn't really there anymore. I'm not, <laughs> I have no particular affinity uh, or attachment to this team. So I'm just going to, uh, just going to put that out there in the world. Just for anyone who needs <laughs> to hear it. I'm yeah. renouncing my wow. Pacers fandom. Joel Wolf on, on pound the rock episode 181. Finally jumping off. The Pacers bandwagon. That's how you know things have gotten bad. Yeah. All it took was an assistant coach trying to obliterate uh, a young player. Okay. Here's my thoughts on the bureaucrat thing. I have a few thoughts. One, I think it's a good reminder that a creative coach, a guy who, you know, in terms of like thinking outside the box and his basketball philosophies, who could, who could be described as a brilliant basketball mind, creative and brilliant basketball mind doesn't necessarily translate to great basketball coach. And especially at the NBA level. Now, I'm not saying Bjorkman can't be a good NBA coach or might not be in Indiana. It doesn't sound like he's going to be back, but who knows, right? What happens? I'm not saying he can't be. But what I'm saying is his performance this season and some of the stuff we're hearing is a good reminder of what I just said. Like, um, I think everyone, especially with the Nick Nurse, thing, like the way Nick Nurse's first season went, particularly in the playoffs, how creative he was, how creative he was then in year two with the Raptors, kind of getting a team that people thought were going to fall off to play even better for large stretches of last season. I don't think it made people think his staff was all like that, but what I think it made teams maybe buy into too much or overvalue. And then it ended up that a couple of the guys were on Nick's staff, but I think it made people like overvalue maybe the creative outside the box type of coaching style, the very 
quote unquote brilliant offensive mind, defensive minds too. Cause I think teams maybe like really bought into the idea of like, okay, you gotta be malleable, you gotta be flexible, you need a coach who can do this and do that, which is all true. But the thing is, just because you're a brilliant and creative coach doesn't mean that you're necessarily always a flexible coach. And sometimes the creative and brilliant minded coaches are also the ones who are the most stuck and stubborn in their own ways. Like, yes, they're creative in the sense they might have seven ideas for how to do this instead of the average coaches three to five. But if they believe in ideas one and two so much that they refuse to go to idea. Like who cares if they've got those five other ideas they can talk to you about if they're not going to use them. You know what I mean? And I feel like Bjorkman has kind of been the example of that. It's like, okay, we've heard about how brilliant and open-minded of a coach he is. He tried a lot of different things um, right off the bat with Indiana. But at some point, if those things aren't working, if you get to a point in the season where you realize your personnel cannot do those things, continuing to do things that don't work with the team you have isn't creative or brilliant. That's just stubborn and foolish at that point, you know? And so that, I think that's one thing. And then to answer your question, I know you were, I agree with you in general that for the majority of the guys in this, like there's just, what is the point of anyone leaking this from either side in the pacer situation? I do see the value or at least can see what, what they saw in the value of leaking. And I would assume the leaks came from the pacer side because I think, I think they're getting ahead of I wouldn't say a PR nightmare, but bad publicity. Like, I think they're getting ahead of the fact that if, say, none of this had come out, right? Like, no one really knew what was going on behind the scenes. We just know the Pacers have been this incredibly banged up team. Like, from a wins and losses perspective, I don't know how much better they could have done given how decimated they were this season. Bjorkren's in his first year, not just with the team, but as an NBA head coach. If we don't hear any of this stuff, and then, like, the day after the season, it's Nate Bjorkren's fired. The immediate reaction would be, what the hell are the Pacers doing? They fire Nate McMillan after all those years to get this like fresh mind. And then one year when like it's not his fault, they fire him. So I think it does benefit them from a PR perspective to have this out there right now and being talked about. Because then when they make the move that otherwise would have been shocking and people would have said it's ridiculous and unfair, now they've got a reason, whether you believe that reason or not. So that, those are my thoughts on the Bjorker thing. And again, I'm not saying he can't be a good NBA head coach. I'm just saying that um, I think people sometimes get like too caught up and they're like, oh, this guy's creative and brilliant. It's like, yeah, but okay, but he's if he's too stubborn in his own creativity, that's not necessarily a strength. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like what we were talking about with Miami a couple of weeks back where you're saying, you know, it's nice that they kind of have all these different ways that they can play at the defensive end, but... There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of intentionality behind it, where like if they decide that their scheme for this game is just to blitz every pick and roll, they're going to do it regardless of situation. And same with the switching, you know, where they'll just switch stuff just to switch it and not really think about whether it makes sense to do that, you know, with a particular pick and roll combination. And I feel like the Bucks have shown a little bit of that, too, where like they're trying a bunch of different stuff, but. But again, like the, the intentionality seems to be a little bit lost where it's just like, yeah, we, we switch now. That's what we do. Not like we're going to be selective about how and when we switch. So I do feel like there's been a little bit of that with the Pacers where like there are certain things that they just don't seem to stray from when I think it would behoove them to do so. But I think, you know, and you, you also hit on something, which is like you can be 
a brilliant tactician. You can have like interesting outside the box ideas, but you know, a, the most important thing is like to be able to adapt those ideas to the personnel that you have on hand and B, you know, for as good a tactician as you might be, like the interpersonal element shouldn't be underplayed here. Right. And that, you know, if you read Sam Amick and, and Shams Charania's reporting, it was a big part of the issue here. Uh, one of the lines from that piece was Bjorkren's abrasive style has come as a surprise in interactions with players and his own coaching staff members and led to the kind of frustration that has caused significant concern. And then it goes on to say that both uh, Sabonis and Brogdon have been unhappy about it. One of the points that was raised was that he's over communicative to make sure he's sharing and receiving messages from the roster. So I mean, I, I don't know how to parse all that, but you can have any number of like great ideas, but if you can't communicate them and if they're not being well-received by your staff or the players and you can't get everybody on the same page, well, then what's the point? You know, like <laughs> your ideas aren't worth anything if the team around you can't actually implement them or you're not communicating them effectively. So yeah, at that um, point, you're just a creative basketball mind who's a bad NBA head coach. That's what you are. And look, I, I I think Bjorkren at some point will probably get another shot at this if this indeed is the end for him in Indiana. But it's also like, I, I think there are some guys who are just better suited to being assistants for that reason. So I don't know, but obviously just like a, a totally disastrous season in Indiana. And like we've talked about the injuries so many times, but uh, it definitely just bears repeating that like all year they, they haven't really been able to defend without Turner on the floor and he hasn't been playing. But like, I, I do think there are sort of deeper rooted problems, right? Like even before their big men started dropping like flies, like they were getting hammered on their own glass almost every night and the defensive schemes were all over the place. I don't know. just seemed like something wasn't fully clicking. So, you know, I want to give a shout out to you right now as Nate McMillan, because look, like tactically, I think we'd both agree there was a lot left to be desired, especially on the offensive end with the way Nate McMillan coached the Pacers. And I know that it's hard to always quantify how much, how much of the credit a coach should get when we, when you can't break every single thing down tactically, like if a team overachieves, right? Usually those are the coaches that get coach of the year votes is when a team overachieves, like how much is that really the coach? And when a team underachieves, which is usually when coaches get better, like how much is that? In all honesty, like how much of that do we really know? I don't know. But the thing you can't deny with Nate McMillan is that almost every single year, the Pacers overachieved what was expected of them with his mm -hmm. rosters and were always competitive. Then he goes to Atlanta as an assistant coach, gets a lot of the credit from Lloyd Pierce early in the season about the Hawks' stunning defensive turnaround. And the players would even talk about how great Nate McMillan was like in terms of teaching defense. Pierce gets fired. McMillan takes over. Even myself thought like, what the hell are the Hawks doing? You know, I, I wrote about it. And one of the things I said was that like, tactically, I thought Pierce had better ideas than what I saw from Nate McMillan all those years in Indiana and Portland. And then you look at the Hawks since McMillan took over. And again, like, I, I don't know how much of we can say it was okay. Like, so, like they're just a better team because Nate McMillan's coaching them. But man, the Hawks have still been pretty damn banged up. It's not like McMillan inherited a much healthier team. Like they've missed some key guys for huge stretches, even during the McMillan tenure. And I think they're like 22 and 11 since he took over. So 
I, like I'm not going to sit here and say, well, if McMillan was still in Indiana, this season would have been a lot better. But I do think at some point, like recognize the pattern there and just shout out the fact that whether it's maybe tactics we don't see, whether it's just being an insanely good people manager and just communicator or mm. team organizer, whatever the case is, Nate McMillan is a really consistently good NBA coach who clearly gets the most out of his teams. And, um, and I just think that's important to note on a day we're talking about his successor in Indiana possibly being out in one year, dealing with a lot of the same injury woes Nate McMillan also often dealt with in Indiana. Also, sorry, just before I say, uh, I do want to mention, because I was just talking about the Hawks, I will probably talk about the Hawks like next week or on a future episode, so I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole. But uh, when Nate, when the day Lloyd Pierce got fired and Nate McMillan took over, the Hawks were 500 to 1 to win the NBA title within just under two months. They're now 50 to one because apparently I was reading this morning about how a ton of money is now being bet on the Hawks to win the NBA, which I think is ridiculous, but it moved from 500 to one to 200 to one in like a month and a half. And then just in the last two weeks, it's moved from 200 to one to 50 to one. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess it makes, if they were at 500 to one and you're looking at a team that might have home court advantage in a first round playoff series, then that's a good bet. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it at 50 to one. No. Um, it, it is weird because like with McMillan, one of the issues that was cited when he lost his job was that the players weren't thrilled about his kind of hard line coaching style. So it seems like in some ways, you know, some of the same issues were there where like, I think him and Brogdon also didn't get along and, uh, you know, there was friction between, between his coaching style and the way I guess some of the players on the roster wanted to be coached. So it's interesting to me that that same issue seems to have recurred with a completely different coach in terms of, you know, style and substance. But I do think, you know, it's worth pointing out that like McMillan's style is probably a little bit more conducive to regular season success. 100%. Because he is super consistent. Like his offense is very structured. And the things that like the Pacers did when he was the coach there were there was a lot of sameness there, right? It's like, this is what we do and we're going to drill it and we're going to repeat it. And we're going to get really, really good at playing this particular way. And I think that is a way to win regular season games. And then they kept running into this wall in the playoffs because that's not necessarily what wins in the playoffs. I, you know, adaptability, I think is the name of the game in the postseason. Which is why you get Nate Bjorkman, right? Right. Which, <laughs> like, no, but, but, yeah. but, you know, I think the Pacers aren't really going to have a chance to showcase that now. They'll get a play in game maybe, but <laughs> Um, I I don't want to be an alarmist, but they might not win another game. Oh yeah. And I'm saying that without having double checked their schedule because I don't know, maybe there's like the classic post blowout response now after the embarrassment against Sacramento, but there's also the possibility just continues to slide. And if like Bjorkman's lost the locker room, if the guys don't really want to play for him and they also don't see any pride to salvage this season, you got Mm -hmm. assistant coaches and players ready to fight. Like they might just be completely checked out. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't go as far as to say they're not going to win another game this season, but I think that probably the most likely outcome for them right now is to slide to the 10 seed and lose in the first play-in game. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like that's how this ends. Um, what about what about Stotts? I mean, does that surprise you at all? Just given, or maybe it's less surprising because of how long he's been there, and they just feel like they've reached the end of the road. But I understand that impulse to just make a change for the sake of making a change. But I also don't 
look at that Blazers roster and what they've accomplished over the last few years and even what they are right now and think, man, a different coach could be getting so much more out of this team. But maybe they just feel like it's time for a new voice. I don't know. Yeah, okay, look, I don't I don't believe in teams being blindly loyal to coaches just because they're long-tenured, right? And in fact, like, I believe the best-run organizations in pro sports are willing to even fire a coach after what the public views as a good year if if the team and the management truly believes um, when they evaluate the coach that the coach didn't actually do a good job or the process wasn't good or that there is an upgrade out there. Like, I, I understand. I think good organizations should do that because the margins are so thin when you're, you know, at the top level and, and only one of 30 teams win in these leagues. But having said that, the upgrade part is a big part of what I just said. I also don't really like the idea of the whole like uh, stale voice thing you hear with a guy like Stodge. He's just been there so long like, and you start hearing that. Like they just might need a fresh voice. His voice has gone stale in the locker room, whatever. It's like, okay, unless you have a clear upgrade or upgrades on your mind, unless you can clearly evaluate the t- your team as a GM or owner, whatever the case may be, and say, this coach that we believed in for nearly a decade now is not good enough to get the job done or is part of the reason we can't get the job done. And here's how we're going to go address. Like, unless internally you can have those conversations with your management team and, and come to that conclusion, I hate the idea of, now nah, we just might have to do it because he's a stale voice and he's been here. You know what I mean? I mean, that article did say that Stotts has less player support now than he did in years past. So, you know, Lillard has been there for how long? Nine years now? And I think mm-hmm. Stotts has been the coach the entire time. We were just talking about interpersonal stuff and maybe it's as simple as like, I'm kind of sick of this guy. I've been listening to this same guy coaching my team for nine years and, you know, I don't care if somebody's coming in and like sort of preaching all the same principles. Like, I just want it to be somebody else. I don't know that it needs to be more complicated than that. I mean, that's that's like a tough reality, I guess, if you're an NBA head coach. But nine years, especially it's in this time. day and age, like that is a long, long tenure, mm-hmm. the same NBA team. Like that that very rarely happens. Yeah, and I will say like if, um, if we're going to give credit to Terry Stotts for, you know, along with Lillard actually on the court, but like, you know, steering this team through troubled injury riddled waters every single year. And they're only a couple of years removed from the Western conference finals. But if we're going to give Stotts credit for that, and, and we often do, then we all also have to acknowledge that, okay, while he might not have the perfect defensive personnel, their defense is frigging beyond abysmal, man. Like the only team they're better than defensively is the Kings who I believe are still on track to have the worst defense of all time. That's the only reason the Blazers aren't the worst defense this season. Like I, other than the year Nurkic had his breakout year, um, I think that was the year he ended up hurting his leg. They've pretty much been a joke on defense every year. Yeah. Well, now so again, I know two... that can't be completely on Stotts, but at some mm-hmm. point, you're also not part of the solution. Yeah, they had two years in a row. Uh, I think it was in 2017-18. I'm pretty sure they finished top ten, and it was a really weird year because their offense was. Like that, that was like the one year in the last four or five when they weren't a top 10 offense. Like their defense was ahead of their offense that year. Uh, and that was the year I think they wound up getting swept in the first round by the Pelicans. 
And then the year after that, like their offense was again elite and their defense was like league average, which is sort of, I think that's kind of the benchmark for that team. Like with their personnel, they should have an elite offense. And if their defense can get up to being league average, I mean, that was the year they went to the conference finals, right? Like that is the the maximal version of this squad. And I do think it's, like last year is just a write-off. They had no wing defenders. They had no Nurkic. And I don't think there was a whole lot of hope for them at the defensive end. I do think it's interesting that like they haven't been able to get it together this year. I expected a lot more from them defensively this season. I was like, Nurkic is coming back. They finally have the wing defenders they need. They get Covington. They get Derek Jones Jr. It seemed like they were going to be able to get back to that level where the offense was still going to be elite and the defense was going to be something resembling league average. And so I think it's interesting that after Stotts was able to squeeze so much out of this team defensively a couple of years back, he hasn't been able to do anything with this iteration of the team. And like we've talked about this before, I like watch their games and I'm trying to figure out just like what exactly is wrong. And there are some simple answers to that, which is like, they play a lot of bad defenders. You know, Dame has not been good defensively this year at all. CJ, I think is like, not as bad as his reputation would suggest. Like he's always in the right spot. Um, He's small. So like, there's a limit to how impactful he can be when he is in those spots. But like, uh, he doesn't mess up. But then it's like, you know, they're they're playing a lot of Ennis Cantor. They're playing a lot of Mello. And when and, it, and even I agree with what you're saying about CJ, but when you got that guy beside Dame, yeah, when those are the two guys at the point of attack, like you need and, a miracle worker behind you for sure. And I like you know Stotts, who's been running like basically a drop coverage almost exclusively for however long he's been there, has tried to mix it up this year and experiment with more putting two on the ball and. Uh, you know, trying to navigate rotations on the back end. And that hasn't worked either. I think their personnel dictates that they should be playing a drop. But when you have Dame at the point of attack and he's not particularly good at navigating screens and, and fighting over top, then that puts you in compromising positions a lot. So uh, it's tough to say how much of that is on him. And, and that's the situation that I look at and think, I don't think this is happening because they feel like Terry Stotts isn't a good X's and O's coach or that he's not getting enough out of that team. It just seems more like, all right, this thing has kind of run its course and it's time to try something new. Which, fair enough. I'm just saying if that's the reason, if you can't pinpoint an X and O's thing or that he's not getting, you better hit it out of the park Mm -hmm. with an upgrade. All right. So this is like longer than we've ever talked about coaching. So, um, why don't we cap this section off? I don't have a lot to say about Scotty Brooks or uh, Luke Walton, but Bud's name was thrown into that mix. And I guess the, the sort of grab quote there was, sources say Budenholzer is likely gone unless there's a deep playoff run. And I think that like there's got to be some context there. Because as of now, you know, they're on track to play the Nets in the second round. It's funny because they just played this mini series against the Nets. They won both games, which was awesome. But it also made it more likely that they were going to see the Nets in the second round. And so if they lose to Brooklyn in round two, and it's a, it's a good, hard-fought, spirited series, 
you know, is that enough? Is that a deep enough playoff run, you know, to save his job? Because ultimately, like, I think they're the second best team in the East right now. So if they lose to the team that I think at full strength is the best team in the East, then I don't necessarily think that's a failure. I think it's going to come down to the how, right? Like, how did they lose? And did they put their best foot forward? Did they make the necessary adjustments and do everything they could to win that series? And ultimately, they were just out-talented. As opposed to, like, did they shoot themselves in the foot? Were mistakes made? Were adjustments not made? Things like that. So, yeah, I don't know. Where, where, I don't even really need to ask where you're at with Coach Bud, but do you feel like you've seen important progress from him this season? And are you expecting better from him this postseason? Look, I think we've talked all year about how if you watch this team, they are a more flexible team and seem to be willing to try more on both ends of the court, um, which you've written about on a couple occasions this year. And then if you look at the roster at Bud's disposal, he should no longer, uh, the, the roster should no longer allow him to not play his best players in insane amount of minutes in the playoffs because this is not a deep team. Um, and so if you look at the roster available to him and, you know, some of his more flexible ways during this regular season, it seems like things are lining up for this to be the year for Bud. Like, the, I mean, there's not really excuses any year, but like this year is especially there are no excuses because you have been willing to try and tinker more in the regular season. You do not have the depth to make the same stupid decisions you make about your stars playing times in the playoffs the last couple of years. So again, just no excuses. Uh, now that no excuses doesn't mean it's championship or bust. I agree with you. Like if, if they go out in a hard fought seven game series to Brooklyn in the second round and we come out of that series saying, Oh, there's nothing else. Mike Budenholzer could have done. Oh, like, I like this adjustment he made or Frig, man, like, you know, milked the most out of Giannis that he could. And it's just, this This is their ceiling right now. If they're going to run into Brooklyn, then I think you can come out of that and bring him back. I mean, I think it's also naive to assume that uh, NBA teams will apply the proper context when it comes to hiring and firing coaches. But I think if they, if the Bucks were to apply the proper context, these would be the, like, if it's the second round, it's got to be to Brooklyn, the loss, which it would be. Uh, it's got to be a long series. And honestly, I think it's going to go seven games. Like, I, I think even that, right? It's like, is it fair? Probably not. But just from like a perception and, um, you know, like PR standpoint, if if Bud has a solid series and, and we come out of that series saying we don't think there's anything else Bud could have done, but they lose in six instead of seven, I think he's gone. You know, and it's weird because we say the exact same thing, but they just get one more game. I'd be like, you know what? I think he might be back. But that's the way it goes in um, pro coaching. At the end of the day, I, I don't think they're going to beat Brooklyn. We can talk about, you know, the, the little mini series they just had. And I know you wrote about how each team kind of played each other, but I, I don't think they're going to beat Brooklyn. And I don't think Bud will be back. And that's not necessarily me predicting that he's going to fall flat on his face and fail as spectacularly in the postseason as he has the last couple of years. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just... Okay, so why don't... I don't have a whole lot to add to that. So why don't we just segue before we take the break to talking about that mini series Because I thought it was mm-hmm. really interesting. Obviously, a couple caveats there, which is, you know, the big one being no James Harden. For Brooklyn, uh, both games were played in Milwaukee, so maybe that had some effect. But I still think that was a pretty impressive showing for the Bucks. Uh, and like I said, uh, as impressive as it was, I don't... You know what? I don't know actually that, it, that it's not a good thing. Like it, it makes it more likely that they're now going to see Brooklyn in the second round. I think 
the Sixers are up two games in the loss column on Brooklyn, and they have a cupcake schedule the rest of the way. So I think it's very likely that Philly ends up as number one and that that's the 2-3. Given what's going on with Brooklyn right now, you might want to play them earlier, like if you're going to have to play them, uh, because they haven't had time to coalesce. We don't know what Harden's health status is going to be. I don't know. That that might put you in a better position to actually knock them off. From a tactical perspective, I think it has to be a little bit worrying for Brooklyn that they don't have a good answer for Giannis. And I think actually the way that they played him, I saw it getting criticized a lot. I think that is their best approach. Is like with De- DeAndre Jordan on him. It, it doesn't have to be off. It doesn't have to be DeAndre, but the biggest player on the floor, the biggest strongest player that they can put out there, it, it was a lot of Blake Griffin, and I thought Blake actually did a surprisingly good job as Giannis's primary. You know, it can be Jeff Green, it can be DeAndre. I think that's the way to do it because the ideal scenario or the the ideal configuration for defending Giannis I think is you have like a big long strong wing at the point of attack who can kind of stall his progress a little bit like think about Kawhi Leonard Jay Crowder guys like that and then you have a stalwart rim protector behind those guys who you know once he busts through is there to meet him at the rim or to bring those double teams, you know, the way that Marcus All was able to, the way that Bam was able to. The Nets don't have that guy. They don't really have either of those guys, right? Like, they don't really have a stalwart rim protector, and they don't have that big wing who can slow them down. So I do think that their best option, if they don't want to put themselves in rotation time after time, is just to put their biggest player on him, have them hang back uh, and absorb his drives. And if he's going to hit 10 jumpers on you because you're giving him all that space. You have to live with that. And the the stat that really jumped out at me from that two game set was he averaged 19 pull-up jumpers a game. That's insane. 19 pull-up jumpers a game. Right. And that's, that's not what you want if you're a Milwaukee. Uh, And he hit nine of them in the first game when he went off for a season high 49 but then he went six for 19 on those pull-up jumpers in the second game and, and wound up scoring 36, but it took him 35 shooting possessions to get there. And there are counters to that for Milwaukee, apart from just Giannis pulling up, right? Like we've seen he can pivot into a dribble handoff with Middleton or Holiday or Bryn Forbes and use that space against Brooklyn or whichever team is playing that style of defense. He can kind of take that space and drive into it and turn it into a post-up and get to his his jump hook, which has been really effective. Like, there are other ways that he can go about it, but I think Brooklyn should probably feel good about the fact that that coverage forced him into that many pull-up jumpers. To me, it's like a good sign that Steve Nash looked at that first game and rather than overreacting, was like, we're going to do the same thing. And they basically did. It was just, the only thing they changed was it was a lot less DeAndre and a lot more Blake Griffin. And that's not ideal for Brooklyn because you're giving up both a size and a speed advantage in that matchup. But I do think that that's probably their best approach. So I don't know. It's, it's good and it's bad, right? The fact that that's their best approach is bad. The fact that it worked as well as it did. And, you know, I'm putting worked in air quotes there because 
Giannis averaged 42 and a half points a game. He and, was still the be- he was the best player on the court in in the aggregate of those two games. As yeah. great as KD is and was, but Giannis was the best player in this two game miniseries. For sure. So that's that's like the big thing for Brooklyn that they have to figure out is like how they're going to defend Giannis. And I I think I don't see any reason why they would change things up after how that two game set went as well as Giannis played because you know, it wasn't just about Giannis, right? Like you can look at how it affected Milwaukee's offense as a whole. They usually take about 26 catch and shoot threes per game. And in that two game set, they took 16 catch and shoot threes a game and way more of their shots were coming off of the dribble because they weren't getting those kind of swing, swing sequences where they were winding up with, you know, a guy like getting a a clean look off the catch they were staying home on shooters and playing Giannis one-on-one. And they're like, if Giannis is going to beat us as a scorer, he's going to beat us as a scorer. So again, Harden being back just sort of totally changes the tenor of that matchup. But did you have any like sweeping takeaways from that two game set? And like, did they, did they change your opinion at all about what that series might look like? No, I mean, I definitely, my, my, you know, big takeaway on an individual basis was like, okay, good for Giannis. He was the best player on the court in the aggregate of these two games when, despite KD playing really well, but yeah, I had a similar thought of you. Like even, I think you just said like 30 seconds ago, maybe Brooklyn's going to figure it out. But yeah, my counter to that would be, I think they got it figured out, man. I'm not that I think they're going to completely shut them down in a seven game series. But yeah, ideally, as you mentioned, you want the like long, strong wing who can meet Giannis on the perimeter and deter him before he even gets his runway. But most teams don't have that. The ideal guy to guard him at the top. So yeah, you put a big man on him and you sag off and... You hope it dares him to shoot jumpers. You hope Bud and the Bucks can't figure out enough counters to overwhelm you. And as you mentioned, it did work. Like he, if if Giannis Antetokounmpo takes nineteen pull up jumpers against or jumpers against you, you have to say what. If he ends up hitting eighteen of them, I'd still say the plan worked. It just backfired because he had an unsustainable shooting night. The thing is, and the reason I like the fact that Steve Nash stuck with it from one game to the next is because. If your plan works defensively and you get Giannis Antetokounmpo to take 19 jumpers in the game, if you play them one time, could he get just crazy hot, have the best shooting night of his life and kill you? Sure. Over the span of two games, is it possible he's unsustainably hot? Like, not likely, but possible. Three games, four games. If it's a long playoff series and you're forcing Giannis Antetokounmpo to take a lot of jumpers a night, regression to the mean almost certainly will happen. And, and that's the thing you're going to remember is that the playoffs are much more about that. Are you playing the same team over and over again? If something like that truly works in its desired state, because you can't control the results necessarily. You, what you do as a coach in game planning is you control the process. So it, it had its desired effect in making him a jump shooter. And I think if they can do that over four to seven games, barring a miraculous improvement in his jump shooting over the next month, that will work. Yeah. And then again, I mean, yeah, like obviously the, the huge caveat here is James Harden didn't play in these two games, as you mentioned. Right. Well, and I do think it's important, you know, like is Milwaukee going to look to incorporate more of the counters rather than just having Giannis take all those jumpers, right? Because I think they would in a playoff series. Because, you, you know, using Giannis as a screener was super effective uh, and has been effective all season long. And they've been doing that more. And I hope to see them like scale that up even further in the playoffs. Holiday has been unbelievable. And I think 
you know, the Nets had Kyrie guarding him for the most part. I feel like if Harden's there, then Harden's going to be that guy because Holiday just like kept taking Kyrie into the post and there wasn't a whole lot that Kyrie could do about it. Whereas Harden as a post defender, I think could actually prevent that from being a weapon for Milwaukee. But yeah, I don't, as encouraging as it was for Milwaukee, I don't think I came away feeling that Brooklyn was so out of answers for what they could do offensively that I'd be worried about like the Bucks outscoring them in a series. I think both those teams are going to have a hard time slowing the other down. And again, this is totally contingent on Harden's health because if Harden's not there, I actually probably give the Bucks the edge because, you know, to, to just go back to what we were saying, like, yeah, I, I think this was, if anything, positive for the Nets, but we're grading them on a curve because they really like, that's their best option. And it's not great that that's their best option for, for guarding Giannis. Right. So I think, it, you know, if Harden can't play or he's compromised, then the Bucks are in a really good spot here. But I don't know, man. I think for the most part, like, especially in that second game, they were throwing a lot of attention Durant's way, denying him the ball, denying him touches in the post, sending like pretty aggressive digs on his drives. And if Harden's there, you can't do that or you can't get away with doing that, right? So, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's sort of where I'm at. Like, I, I think fully healthy Brooklyn still has the edge, but not fully healthy Brooklyn. Milwaukee definitely has a chance. Like, the door is wide open for them, if that's the case. Agreed. Um, and again, like, even I think it was a couple of weeks ago when we went through, like, the, you know, if one of their big three is out, like, rank the, them as twos. And obviously, KD Harden is the ideal one. So, yeah. I think... If it was KD Harden with Kyrie out, no disrespect to Kyrie, but I'd still like Brooklyn's chances a lot more. If Harden's out, I agree. I think the Bucs have a real chance to get it done. Um, you also made a good point in the piece you wrote, breaking down the miniseries, about why what people see as an obvious answer, it's like, well, Giannis should just guard the opposing team's best player because he's an incredible defender. Why that doesn't always work or why it doesn't make sense necessarily because Giannis is so good as a help defender and you showed a couple plays where if he's the primary defender on KD, because you just think, well, Giannis is the best defender, put him on KD. The problem is, you know, when a screen comes, whatever the case may be, you, Giannis ends up trailing the play. And now your best help defender, Giannis Tedekupo, is no longer behind the play waiting at the rim. Uh, what are your thoughts on it in general? Like, do you, do you believe Giannis should never guard the opposing team's best player? No, absolutely not. I, I think that... There, there are definitely situations where it makes sense to have him guarding that dude. And to even take it back to like last year when I feel like this conversation really reached a fever pitch. I think Jimmy Butler is one of those players where it's like, I do sort of feel like Giannis should be the primary on a guy like that in the high leverage spot. Because just like the Lakers showed in the finals, like you can go under screens against Jimmy Butler and meet him on the other side. And if he's going to rain pull-up jumpers on you, you live with that. But against someone like KD, it becomes trickier because you got to go over the screen. And then, you know, the big guy guarding the screener, if usually that's going to be Brooke Lopez for the Bucks, has got to be up to take away KD's pull-up. And that's where you really hurt for the lack of secondary rim protection behind Lopez in those situations. And there were like a couple times where 
you know, Giannis was defending off of the ball and he was guarding like Bruce Brown or he was guarding Jeff Green. And the Bucks were basically able to blitz KD in the pick and roll and get the ball out of his hands. And the Nets are playing four on three. But if Giannis is one of those three guys, he's usually going to be able to clean up the mess. And there were a couple times where he just he was guarding Bruce Brown in a strong side corner and gets a block. You know, he blocked DeAndre at the rim. He snatched the ball right out of Landry Shamit's hands on the roll. Um, and in that case, it was like the Bucks blitz KD because he tried to go after Bryn Forbes. And they're like, we're not going to switch Bryn Forbes onto you. So they doubled them. He hit Shamit on the roll. Boom, there's Giannis, like ripped the ball right out of his hands. Like that's the benefit of having Giannis as a help defender. I think the issue is that the Nets, like they wound up playing Bruce Brown 15 minutes across the two games because I think they realized like we're not going to give Giannis a place to help off of. And most of the time they're playing five out. Most of the time there are no non-shooters on the floor that Giannis is going to be able to help aggressively off of. So if you remove that element, then I think it's like, okay, like you're limiting what Giannis can do as a helper anyway. You might as well have him guarding KD. And I do think, you know, the screen navigation is something they're going to have to figure out. But we saw in that game, like what Giannis was able to do in terms of denying KD the ball still had an impact. And so even if you have some complications in on-ball scenarios when he's trying to track KD over screens, his ability to just deny KD from getting the ball in the first place can still be really beneficial. But again, that's another area where like, okay, if James Harden and Kyrie Irving are also on the floor, then I don't know how much it matters. Yeah, no, I I think Giannis should be guarding the opposing team's best players, best wing players um, in high leverage situations but not full-time. And so I think we're on the same page there. Like, I think, look, if you need to stop uh, on the last or second last possession of the game in a playoff game, and, you know, whether it's KD or insert Jimmy Butler, I think is a better example, as you mentioned last year, obviously doesn't have the pull-up shooting of KD, even though he did in the playoffs. Um, like, there are moments where you want Giannis on that guy because at some point you also just be like, okay, like who's our best deterrent here? If they want one shot, who's our best deterrent? Like, yes, we're taking away our best help defender, but here's hoping we don't even let him get to the rim. You know what I mean? So I think there are moments when Giannis should be guarding the other team's best player. And I think that's what the frustration was last year in prior is that Bud seemed averse to doing it at all Mm -hmm. because of this like dedication to no, 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 he's our best help defender. Can't have that. And I think again, though, whether he ended up making the right decision or the wrong decision, doing it with KD in, in probably for too many minutes, I do think even just that is an example of what I was saying earlier, where like if you're just using this regular season, Budenholzer does at least seem more willing to tinker and try things and be more flexible. So again, that plus he does not have the roster to play too many guys many minutes. Like if, if there's going to be a year this guy's going to figure it out in the playoffs, it has to be this year. And if it's not, and I don't mean figure it out like win the championship, just be better as a coach in the playoffs. And if he doesn't mm-hmm. do it this year, at that point, it's like, man, you're. I have no pity for you at that point if you're going to continue to be the butt of the joke. The butt of the joke? Nice. Um, well, look, Giannis barely guarded KD in the first game of that two-game set, and he guarded him about four times as often in the second game. So there was definitely uh, an adjustment made there. And I think, you know, to to go back to what I was saying about why it makes sense to have Giannis there as a helper, 
And like if Brooklyn is playing a non-shooter, absolutely stash Giannis on that guy and have him play free safety. You're with with somebody like KD, you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't, because in that situation, he can just go without a screen and just be like, all right, I'm I'm just gonna cook this guy one on one. And he did that to PJ Tucker over and over and over again. And and like the same go like Middleton, I thought did an okay job. Holiday actually did a pretty good job, but like he can shoot over any of those guys and get to his spot. And like, if he wants to just play one-on-one, then I think he'll be fine doing that. So you maybe make that more difficult if Giannis is guarding him, but then he can bring the screen. And (laughs) there's like, you know, that's the luxury of having KD, right? Like you can do anything that you want with him. I was going to say, it's, this is more of a, this is less of, I think, of a Giannis or a Bucks problem and more of an any team playing against Kevin friggin' Durant problem. Yeah. So anyway, I, I mean, look, the, those two games, if anything, did make me just really excited about the potential of this matchup happening in the playoffs. and Should make the Sixers excited too. Absolutely. I mean, this is breaking perfectly for them. I, I don't, You know what? I'm not even going to say it's breaking perfectly for them. Like, they've made this happen for right. themselves. Uh, they've been unbelievable all season. They weathered the Embiid absence, I think, better than I would have expected them to. And they're going to be a deserved number one seed. And that's almost certainly going to lead to them playing in the conference finals. So credit to them for that. I think as of now, like I would have them as an underdog in the conference finals, no matter which of those two teams they wind up facing. But also, if you think about the fact that they're going to have an easier road to getting there and that one of Brooklyn or Milwaukee might be pretty worn down by the time they get to that conference final series, then yeah, I think the Sixers have to feel very good about where they're at and the chance that they've given themselves of coming out of the East. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we're moving over to the West, where a team that we both came into the season saying was the favorite to win the championship, even when we talked about the kind of contenders in the West however long ago that was, maybe a month ago, when LeBron and AD were both out, you still had them as a prohibitive favorite to at least come out of the Western Conference. Are you still feeling that level of confidence in this team, given how rusty AD has looked in his return, given the fact that LeBron came back for not even two full games, before he essentially went back on the shelf, nursing that ankle injury, and that the Lakers are now in position, maybe, to slide into a play-in spot, which has LeBron talking about firing people in the league office. You're asking me if I'm as confident in this team? I mean, hell no, man. (laughs) Okay, so let me let me. uh, let me ask you a more direct question. Are they still the favorites right. in the West? And if not, who is? I mean, I think I'd have to say no. Because, look, my thing the whole time, even when they were without those two guys, A, I thought the Lakers did a hell of a job without them, especially defensively. But my whole thing was, 
they've given those guys a lot of time off and you know the their role players all stepped up so that those guys were able to get the time off they needed while the Lakers kind of treaded water but the entire point of that was the caveat was and as long as those guys are healthy by the time late May comes around in the playoffs, yeah, I'm not, no one's beating these guys 4-7 if LeBron and AD are fully healthy. I did not anticipate that LeBron and AD would not be fully healthy. And look, I think like two of the Lakers games I've watched since AD came back, he limped around in both of them. Like I'm not exaggerating, literally limped at points of the game, mm-hmm. still finished the game. Hasn't exactly looked like himself, understandably so. He missed a lot of time and clearly something's still bothering him. More concerning, you know, high ankle sprains can be really bad, especially for NBA players. That, that's a bad injury for LeBron, even as, you know, cyborg-like as he is. That's a very bad injury at this stage of a player's career. And the fact that he didn't look very Braun-like in his first two games back, and it wasn't the kind of thing where it's like, all right, he hasn't hit his stride yet. Give him a few more games. It's the opposite. It's like, oh, he hasn't hit his stride yet, and now he needs more time off. And when he comes back, he's still... It's just like things are starting to add up. And then you add that to the fact that now they've fallen so far back in the West Pack that it's like they're almost certainly going to have a much more difficult road than I envisioned for them, which might even involve a play-in game. Like, I still think they'll avoid that, but what are they, half game up on seventh right now? Like, things are just way too dicey for them now. Health-wise, like all things put together for me to be, I'd be crazy to say I'm as confident in them as I was two months ago, let alone five months ago, whenever the hell this season started, when I thought they were the favorites over the field. So again, the same caveats apply. Like if LeBron and AD are fully healthy and in the lineup, I'm picking them to win the championship. The thing is, I am no longer convinced LeBron and or AD will be near 100% by the time the Lakers need them to be. That worries the hell out of me. And if it's not them, look, the Clippers have been incredible this season. They still have Kawhi Leonard, and you know we'll see whether regular season P can, you know, help playoff P this year. If the Lakers are banged up, like the Clippers would be the smart choice, um, and I think probably what my head would say. But if I combine my head and my heart, I kind of would like to say Phoenix could be the favorite. If Jamal Murray didn't get hurt, I might straight up pick the Nuggets to win right now um like we both loved what that team did at the deadline and i you know i said it so many times already that i thought they raised their championship odds more than anybody and i thought they were the one team that moved from the like we call them contenders but would we ever really pick them to win the championship to the actual no this team can win a championship Mm -hmm. now they they were the one team that moved themselves from that middle not middle but you know tier two whatever you want to call it to the true uh tier with like three or four championship contenders obviously bummer there i'm not as great as they've been, as resilient as they've been since the Murray injury, as unbelievable as this MVP season from Jokic is, they're not coming out of the West without Jamal Murray. So if it's not the Lakers, I'm, I'm going to say, I know this sounds like I'm like sub-potting the, the Jazz because they have the best record in the league and I'm not mentioning them, but I, I'm going to say Clippers or Suns. I do think... Head, head, head says Clippers, combo of head and heart says Suns. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, the Suns have been unbelievable. I, I think if you just look at their win profile, their peripheral stats, how they've played at both ends of the floor this season, they might look like the logical pick. Like there's no reason based on anything that they've done this season to think otherwise. I think there, it's just 
more for me, I guess, questions about how their defense is going to hold up in a postseason setting and whether, you know, the, I guess there are certain series in which, like if they played the Jazz, for instance, you could say that uh, like the top end talent on the Suns is actually greater. But I, I don't see a ton of matchups where it's like, okay, the Suns have the best player in this series. And that would worry me a little bit as well as they sort of play as a team and as much sense as that team makes and like how they kind of add up to something greater than the sum of their parts. Um, there are still questions that I have, but like they've certainly made a strong case for being the West favorite. They, they've played incredibly well. The Clippers, I mean like that, that would like, if I was picking, I would say they're the favorite right now, but they don't make it easy because <laughs> They, they look unbeatable one minute and dysfunctional the next. And, and like as hard as it is not to believe in them, it just still feels to me like something isn't fully clicking. Mm. Um, and like, for example, I was, I was watching them play against the Pacers, I don't know, a couple weeks back. And there was just this like back-to-back possessions that really stuck out to me because there was one possession where they ran a really nice set. It was a Rondo Zubach pick and roll on the right side of the floor. And simultaneously PG set a back screen up top for Marcus Morris. And then Zubach rolled directly into a pin down for Paul George. And the Pacers had switched the initial back screen, but then both guys wound up closing out to PG and Rondo hit Morris underneath with like a really nice bounce pass for a layup. And it's like, okay, that, that's good stuff. You know, you're leveraging PG's gravity. You are engaging defenders on both sides of the floor. That's what you want to be doing. That looks good. The next trip down, nothing happened. Like, guys were pointing, but nobody really cut or screened for anyone. And it just wound up with them clearing out one side of the floor for Marcus Morris to ISO against Doug McDermott and shoot a contested 18 footer just before the shot clock buzzer. And that was just like such a perfect encapsulation of what makes this team so frustrating. Like they really Jekyll and Hyde it where they look like a different team from one moment to the next. And there is so much potential there and it just feels like they don't always tap into it. And so that worries me a bit because if we were just saying like stack the teams up, next to each other and like, you know, taking for granted that the Lakers just like, aren't going to be whether it's that they haven't had enough time or that they're not fully healthy. Like the Clippers to me look like the team on paper that should be the best. Like they should come out of the West, but I just don't know sometimes like it just doesn't look right all the time. So it it feels very wide open to me. And I do think like the Nuggets are going to run into some issues in the playoffs that they haven't run into so far but we have to include them in this conversation. They're 10 and two since Mm -hmm. the Murray injury. They have the MVP. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we haven't really waded into the MVP discourse because as you know, I, there's nothing I loathe more than preemptive award talk. And I feel like this season it's been for whatever reason, worse than ever. Like we, I saw people saying, uh, continue. Well, I just like it felt like two weeks into the season, people were talking about the MVP race. And it's like, there is no MVP race. There is no MVP right now. We've played like 10 games. That's not how it works. I am not exaggerating when I say 
I'm not going to say who, but I multiple people on my timeline who tweeted within the first month of the season that Joel Embiid practically had MVP locked up. And I threw up a little bit in my mouth, not because Joel Embiid wasn't making a strong MVP case or hasn't had a phenomenal season, but because anyone who thinks any award is locked up after a quarter or close to locked up a quarter way through the season has probably been watching basketball for three months. Like what? And if you're, if you're a voter who has that line of thinking, then I loathe you even more because well, no one seems to want to admit it, um, game seven, well, this is an 80, uh, 72 game season. So like game 70 uh, actually doesn't mean less proportionally than game three or 17. You know what I mean? And it's like people seem to forget this. It just like gives people something to talk about, I guess. And it's like interesting for, it's, it's not interesting for me, but like for some people, I guess, to sort of track that race from one week to the next and talk about who's been the best player or the most valuable player tracking the mvp race i'm fine with yeah i don't like people becoming so loyal to a person in an award race like 35 games into the season that's what i don't understand if you want to track the race and talk about the contenders cool but to like decide an award is basically decided less than half with your seat i think that's ridiculous and then to just stick with your that guy because that's your guy now like it's just buffoonery yeah you know, so with all that said, Nikola Jokic is the MVP. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's and, been over for 40 games. Um, and I think, you know, healthy Embiid was the only guy who I thought was close. And I still probably would have had Jokic as the front runner even before Embiid went down. But it was close. Like Embiid's been an absolute monster this season. But to me, it's always just been those two guys and this sort of last ditch push to get Chris Paul into the conversation. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that you and I both have all the respect in the world for Chris Paul's abilities, but come on. Like, (laughs) no, Chris Paul is not the MVP. Right. No, LeBron, you know, was never leading the MVP race by any objective measure. What Jokic has done this season is inspiring. It really is. Like, the fact that the Nuggets are, are still just chugging along, winning almost 90% of their games after losing their best guard. And not only that, like their injury situation has only gotten worse since Murray mm-hmm. went down, right? They lost Will Barton. Monty Morris is out. PJ Dozier is out. They Their backcourt is Facundo Campazzo and Austin Rivers. And that's literally it. Michael Porter Jr. started at the two last game. Yeah. Like that's how dire Rivers has given them good minutes. Oh man, way. he's been awesome. He's been like really solid for them. Yeah. He, he's absolutely getting after it at the defensive end. Like that was a terrific buyout pickup for them. But it was a buyout pickup. Like that's now like the the, the second guard on their depth chart. And I, I want to give a huge shout out to Campazzo as well, who's been terrific during this stretch and like way better and more impactful than I could have possibly imagined him being. Like he is really kind of kept them going with like his speed off of the dribble. Um, He shot the ball pretty well, his passing obviously. And like his ball handling craft is is something that we knew was there, but like the fact that he's managed to continue to be effective while actually like playing way more and handling the ball way more than he was earlier. And like his defense, which as as a five ten guard, you would expect to be fairly limited has been 
awesome. Like, obviously, because of his size, that makes him really difficult to screen. And I think you see that a lot with these small guards is like, they're just able to navigate screens a little bit easier. But he he's just been, as far as pressuring the ball and just creating turnovers, I think he's had five steals in each of the last two games. He's able to help and recover really effectively. He just reads passing lanes, I think, very well. He's been huge for them and a big part of what's what's kept them going. He's got a grit about him too that I really, really like and admire. And like, not, I don't think he's a dirty player, mm-hmm. but he's got like a grit and I think he plays on that edge in a like safe competitive way. Uh, but in a way that, you know, especially like when the playoffs roll around, I think if you're rooting for the team playing the Nuggets in the playoffs, you're going to hate Fikando Composite. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's got that like teammates will love him, opponents will hate him vibe. But again, not in like a plays dirty way, just a really gritty kind of grimy, like toes the line, but does it in a safe competitive way. I like really like watching him play. And he's he's faster than I thought with the ball in his hands too. Like he can really get into the teeth of the defense and make some stuff happen. So all that said, the fact that Yo- like th- th- this is Jokic's masterpiece. He is the reason that they're continuing to win games. I, I don't know if you... Did you watch that game they played against the Clippers a few nights ago? The one they won? Yeah. And like... Yeah, everyone, Jokic had a big night. That, I mean, well, we could say that about like every night. Yeah, this, he was great. And there was but, like this one kind of like blind pass that he made to the corner that everyone was freaking out about and rightly so it was a ridiculous pass but it was it's almost like ho-hum par for the course for Jokic like he makes those kind of passes I feel like every game sometimes multiple times a game but like that that whole sequence stuck out to me because it showed not only like what makes Jokic so special but what makes the Nuggets function as well as they do even in their shorthanded state because basically what happened is they entered the ball to Jokic on the left block. Rondo made a pretty bad gamble, basically trying to blindside Jokic and come from behind and swipe the ball. And the instantaneous way in which like everybody on the floor processed what they needed to do and what was about to happen, it was like clockwork, right? Because as soon as that happened, like Jokic knows, okay, now Kawhi is on the weak side having to guard two players. And it's Compazzo in the corner and Aaron Gordon on the wing. Immediately, Gordon cuts, which occupies Kawhi. And that leaves Compazzo open in the corner. And without even looking, Jokic fires this like no-look dart to Campazzo for the three. And like the fact that everybody in that sequence knew exactly what was about to happen and that Jokic didn't even have to look to know where he had to throw the ball. And also obviously like the ability that he has to just make that blind pass is what makes him so special. But it's just, I just love watching that team because of how connected they are and how much synergy there is between all of their players and and stuff like that. It's just like happens on the regular for them because uh, I feel like they're just so kind of clued in to what everybody else on the floor is doing. And Jokic is able to sort of conduct that symphony like an absolute maestro. Like he's just, he's seeing the game at, I think a higher level than outside of LeBron, like nobody that I've ever watched before. Okay. If, if let's like think, it sounds off to say, but if, if say we're thinking worst case scenario, LeBron and AD aren't right. And so the Lakers aren't going to hit their, their, their this year ceiling and can't repeat rank the other four West contenders in order of championship probability. 
Oh man, it's so hard. I mean, I'm gonna keep the Clippers at number one. Like I've just, I've sort of dug in my heels as being a Clippers believer, even though my eyes sometimes tell me like, watch this and your belief might be shaken. Like I still do believe in playoff Kawhi. Paul George has been absolutely ridiculous this season. And I just don't, there's no logical reason aside from the fact that he stunk it up in the playoffs last year to think that he's going to have any issues carrying that over this time around. Like he just looks like a different player to me as far as not only like the way that he's shooting the ball, but how he's driving the ball. So I got to have them as number one. And then after that, the Suns and Jazz are basically on the same level to me. And it's a level that I think is like really not that far down from where the Clippers are at. And I don't see a ton of differentiation between those two teams. I would say I believe in the Suns offense more in a playoff setting, because I think if you're playing a sophisticated playoff defense, that's able to like contain your initial actions and sort of turn it into more of like a one-on-one type of game. I have a lot more faith in the Suns ability to navigate those situations than I do in the jazz. But I also believe in the Jazz's defense in a playoff setting more than I believe in the Suns. So I, I, I just basically I, put them kind of on the same level, like two and three. Um, and then I think the, the gap between Phoenix and Utah is a lot bigger than that, man. As a play, in terms of playoff, I don't know, man. Like it's just like I know you know you've harped on this. Like their their kind of wing rotation is built for the type of playoff matchups that you know, maybe are going to determine how this all shakes out, right? Like if they if they wind up playing the Clippers or the Lakers, they sort of have the horses on the wing to deal with those teams. But it's just that, and Aiton's been really good too. Like I don't want to, I don't want to deride the way that he has played. Like I think he has done his job more than acceptably. I'm just not at a point where I'm trusting their big man rotation in like a second round playoff series. I don't, and they're not really designed to play small, I guess, in the same way that some of these other teams are. So I know people have concerns about Gobert also in the playoffs, but like, I I honestly don't. Like, I have I have concerns about Gobert at the offensive end in the playoffs, but not at the defensive end. Yeah. So it will be a fascinating Western Conference playoffs. It's it's wide open, man. That's the thing. Like I could really La- see Lakers Clippers in the first round <laughs> would be freaking ridiculous, and yeah. I can't wait to see it. It's it's very possible, right? That uh, like the Lakers wind up six and the Clippers wind up three. That that is definitely a possible, or, or it could be the four or five too, right? Because I think the Clippers are are actually the four seed right yeah. now. The Nuggets have passed yeah. them. Um. So yeah, and then I you know as much as I just like was sort of going on that long soliloquy lauding the Nuggets and what they've done. You know, like they're going to get into a playoff series and teams are going to be so keyed in on Jokic. And I know there are limits to how much you can key in on Jokic and like what he's able to do as a playmaker just makes it difficult to load up on him the way that you would load up on another star. But I, I it's just, it just feels like too much on his shoulders. Um, as good, like Porter Jr. has done an awesome job stepping into that kind of vacuum yeah, guys as their number up, two man. they have uh and he plays so well off of Jokic too right like yeah. that's that's such a perfect match but I just think that the lack of guard depth is gonna come back to bite them eventually they could definitely win a series 
and I'm not taking it totally off of the table that they can like surprise us all and win the West, but I would have them at like a lower level than like the than Clippers, Suns, and Jazz right now. Just I, I just think it's Nuggets, a lot to overcome. If the Nuggets find a way to win the West this year without Jamal Murray, we th- this will go down from Nikola Jokic as one of the greatest individual performances over the course of a season in his that we've ever seen. Be like, now, I don't think they're. I don't think they're actually going to do it. But yeah. if, if they did, it'd be an incredible story. Be comparable to, to like to, to like Wade in two thousand six. Yeah, yeah, or like Dirk in twenty eleven. And even man, even then, I'm I'm not saying you could just get him anywhere near a playoff run as two thousand six Dwayne Wade did. But even if you go back to two thousand six Dwayne Wade, like that Heat team struggled early because Shaq was hurt. That's why they're. I think they only won fifty two games that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, again, not taking anything away from Wade, but it's not like he carried this juggernaut start to finish, you know, and then raised it again in the playoffs. He had that incredible playoff run, great finals. But if we're talking start to finish and Jokic were to get this team somehow to the finals, like it would be, this would be even better, like than that full season. Because yeah, he's done it start to finish for a near, whatever they are, top three seed. And then obviously, you know, missing his number two, it would be, it'd be incredible, man. If you were like a, a playoff defense sort of trying to game plan for Jokic. What do you think you would try to do? Like, would you want to turn him into a playmaker and make anybody else on that team beat you? Or would you more try to let him be a scorer and be like, okay, you don't have a ton of help here. So see if you can kind of beat us on your own. Yeah. I think making him a scorer is a little, maybe not easier, but a little better of a plan now that he doesn't have Jamal Murray with him Mm -hmm. right as you mentioned he doesn't have as much help now if you turn him into a score where he's going to carry the the biggest load then yeah like maybe that's your best chance against them but I mean I guess you could go the other way with that too you could say well if you turn him into a playmaker he also has less options around him with with Jamal Murray Um, so I think in general the job has gotten easier but I don't know man that's what makes him so goddamn ridiculous is that like like, there's a lot of players who can say, like, oh, what do you do with this guy? But with Nikola Jokic, you really have to look at it as a team and be like, what do you do with this guy? Because he can absolutely pick you apart with his playmaking. And then, you know, he, he can look unstoppable at times if you do turn him into a scorer. Mm-hmm. So, like, he can bully you inside and he can have a night where he hits 8-3. Like, and that, I mean, look, the, the, his progression as a scorer is really what's elevated him to yeah. that next level this season, right? Because that was, and obviously he showed this in the playoffs the last couple of years, but yeah, it's like once upon a time, making Jokic a scorer was the move. Like you didn't want to unlock his passing and he was often a tentative, you know, not particularly assertive scorer. Uh, and that certainly is not the case anymore. So it might just be to like try and run him ragged at the defensive end. And hope that that like takes enough out of him that yeah. he can't do as much damage offensively. But uh, I, I do think the fact that he has become basically unguardable gives the Nuggets a chance. Like it does give them a chance to win the West as improbable as that seems given their injury situation. I, I definitely not taking anything off of the table for them right now. And that goes for the Lakers too, right? Because it's oh, possible yeah. like LeBron takes a few more games off, is able to come back healthy. AD works himself back up to the level where maybe maybe neither him or LeBron is at 100%. But say both of those guys operating at like 90%, 
that's still a pretty frightening playoff opponent yeah. for anybody in the West. Yeah. Uh, I know we've gone crazy long, so I'll just ask you one more question. It's like a 15-second answer, but when we were talking about how no one else is actually should actually be in the true MVP race because it should be Jokic's, I actually do think the one guy that if he if he didn't get hurt and played the final two months of the season the way he had from when he got to Brooklyn, if James Harden did what he did when he first got to Brooklyn for like another two months for the remainder of the season and the Nets finished with the one seed despite injuries to like KD and Kyrie, do I think he would have completely surpassed Jokic? I guess not. And there's probably a lot of voters who just wouldn't want to vote for him because of went, what went down this season. But I think he would have been the one guy that you could have at least talked yourself into having a legitimate case. Because what he was doing in Brooklyn, not that it should have surprised anyone, was pretty damn insane for that, like, I would say three and a half, four week stretch. And then he got hurt. If he had done that for like another two months and the Nets got the one seed with KD and or Kyrie out, I think Harden would have made it at least somewhat of a conversation at least more so than the other guys are right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still just think that Embiid is like the one guy who could have, with a fully healthy season, been right there. But Harden was, yeah, I mean, Harden was playing unbelievable as well. I think that, that seems like an appropriate place to leave off. So unless you've got anything else to add about any of this, Cash. Or, got a great fan shout out. Well, there you go. Let's Let's get to that. Okay, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Tomas Dirksy, all the way from Hungary. Let's go. At T Dirksy on Twitter, hit me up last week, uh, said, big hi from Hungary. He's been with us from episode one somehow. Says he has us in his must listen folder. Says keep up. Uh, and he also told us to keep up with the personal stuff. That's what makes fans stay with you. Um, and then he also put dot, dot, dot. Also just keep trashing people, smiley face. Um, and then the best part is by like his profile, he follows a bunch of like sports media, like sports things and likes about, but he doesn't usually tweet. And then the end of his tweet to, to me or like really to us was my first and last tweet probably. So not only do we appreciate having a fan in Hungary, but the fact that Tomas seemed to save his one and only tweet to let us know that he's a Pound the Rock listener. And then the best part was, because he said he's been with us from episode one, and he's has us in his must-listen folder. He listens to all the episodes. I went back and looked at like our last six episodes because I was genuinely curious. And the hilarious thing is, in our uh, the analytics site we use for the pod, it does actually consistently show one listener in Hungary. <laughs> as far back as I could go. I mean, I only went through six or seven episodes, but... I, it made me laugh out loud because I'm pretty sure that's Tomas. Uh, so anyway. Well, what? He, he hasn't told any of his Hungarian friends? I mean, come on. Maybe maybe Tomas is the biggest NBA fan in Hungary. But yes, please do tell your Hungarian friends, Tomas. But regardless of that, we are hugely appreciative of your support, of your dedication. And like I said, for saving your one tweet for us. And then, uh, yeah, that's just a reminder for any of our pound the rock listeners all over the world i guess if you're a fan of the show if you're not whatever hit us up uh let us know what you think how long you've been listening where you're listening from and we will get you a shout out on a future episode and uh, i think that's it for me this week there you have it thank you tomas thank you to all our listeners that's a wrap on yet another episode so for joseph cacharo i'm joe wolf on pound the rock <laughs>